else. It will not help you or serve you if you rely on my um, discrimination. That will not serve you. That will harm you, not hurt that help. Really? Sorry. Very disappointed. <laughs> I just you can, you can find them if you look for them. I've been looking for a long, long time. And you should be able at least to start seeing the development of those within yourself. Oh yeah. So I mean, I'm not denying that, but I want to learn from somebody. Oh, so you fast track this. <laughs> If that's what you want, then you'll be put in touch with such people. If that's actually what you want, you'll find them, you'll meet them. Yes. I meet them by wanting to meet them and keeping my eyes and ears open for them. Yes, I, I, I've, I've been keeping my eyes and ears open for 30 years. Well, you've probably met some. Possibly one person, but um, you know, I find it very inspiring to be in company of people from whom I can learn. Some of them are obvious, and some of them are hidden. But why can you not tell me um, so that I can? Because that would damage you. I don't understand. Why should you have faith in, in my discrimination? Have to develop your own. It's something that each person needs to develop on. My biggest fear is that I could come across somebody and not recognize it. Um, and then I would really kick myself afterwards. I'm sure it's already happened. <laughs> okay. Talking in riddles. <laughs> I'm sure it's already happened. I'm sure you already met such people and you just didn't recognize them. Many of them are hidden. Some of them may have big positions of, of leadership and be obvious, and they may be people that other people are saying, yes, this person's like that. And some of them may be. And some of them are just in the background. And they're not very recognized even by the people who live with them. I was just visiting somebody like that. There's a certain place I go to primarily just to meet a particular person. I go there for other reasons too, 70%. And that person is not recognized in their own community as with what they are and who they are. How can people be so blind? We tend to judge by externals. We tend to think that it's going to look a certain way externally. So we don't see it when it's in front of our face. Because we didn't think it would look like that. Um, okay, I get a lot of inspiration from people like Vivekanand, reading his books, Ramakrishna, his life. Mm -hmm. And if I met Ramakrishna today, I would not recognize it. Um, okay, well, there you go. But I'm okay. So, in other words, you're saying to me to develop myself so I recognize. Yes. Exactly. Why should you go by my faith? 
That's not going to help you. You have to develop your own faith in your own relationship. Yes, but I mean... In other words, artificial. <coughs> yeah, it will hurt you in the long run. It's just not a good idea. We do that. There's a lot of people who do that, but it doesn't mean that it's good. A lot of people will do it. Yes, this is develop your own faith by studying the scriptures and by examining. I'm sorry I can't give you the answer you want. <laughs> Anybody else have anything you want to discuss? Um, is this necessary? Is this, are we going? Is this necessary? I have no idea. <laughs> doesn't seem necessary. No, no. Um, a, a it's not a beginner's question, it's a bit elaborate. Um, it regards my father. Um, when my mom was still alive, um, she had taken to, she had a, a little image of Copal in, in a box, which was like representing his bed, and she would put to sleep <laughs> the image ladies and then wake him up. And so, as you know, my mom left her body. So in last year, my father, unexpectedly, he's taken to continue this pastime. Out of, out, he got inspiration somehow last year. And um, so he does, he's 80, 80 years old, but he, he has great pastime like this. And, and every day he's doing. And he said to me, when he forgets to do this, he would put Gopal to have a siesta if he forgot. He's gone to sleep in Nirpunta. So he's, he's developed some sort of, I don't know, some consciousness. So this is what's going on. And a friend of mine here, uh, about maybe two months ago, she called me just to tell me the last time that she found in a, in Ken somewhere in a, in a shop a little uh, murti of Gopal. And she felt that she had to call me uh, and share this. And so anyway, so talking to my dad about it, and, and he has great desire to have this day in his home. So my question is, is he okay for, he's not, you know, he's not really chanting, or uh, he's not a big meat eater, but uh, there's some sort, probably he's kept some fish and maybe some chicken in his diet, and so I don't know. If I'd say generally not. You know, Prabhupada talked about giving Gorni Thai deities yeah. to people. I mean, he talked about that one or two times, yeah. about just doing mass distribution of Gorni Thai deities. So if you want to take that instruction as a general instruction, you could do that. But otherwise, deity worship should be actually for people who are initiated. It's one of the five items of initiation. So how can I... Because I want to encourage him. No, whatever he's already doing, leave it. I mean, I wouldn't take that away from him. But I wouldn't, you know, increase it. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else might give you different advice. That's my perspective. No, no, I thought, yeah. I hope that's right. trying to comprehend that Krishna has a body, you know what I mean? Like, like 
he's an old person. Like, I can't really understand that. Could you like elaborate on that? Explain. That. From what angle do you want me to explain? Like how is your like? Watch it. How do you like? How do you think about him? Do you think about him as a pro, like? You know, how do I person? Yeah, you, yeah, you person. I don't know if that'll help you. Are yeah. you having trouble logically accepting that God can be a person? Yeah. What What is the problem with God being a person? This, this doesn't seem to um, make sense to me. Okay. What, what about it doesn't make sense? Like, like for me, like, my understanding that like God is everything, right? So he is, yes. So um, how could God be a person if he's everything, you know? Why can't he be both? I, I think it's hard for my mind to understand. You know, like. That's true. Maybe it's, it's called inconceivable. Yeah. But why can't you do both? I mean, materially, you can have a person running a business and they're aware of everything that's going on in the business and their energy and their influence is everywhere and they're still a person. So why can't that be true? Just, you know, ratchet up a few notches. Why couldn't somebody actually be everywhere by their energy and still be a person? I must mean um, Krishna is a really big person then. Right? Well, but that, that's thinking in terms of material time and space. But Krishna's form is not like, it's not a limiting or limited form. So with my form, if my arm is here, then it's not here. So we can think of form like that. We can think of form as a limitation. But you can also think of form in another way. Just like language. So when we were babies, our the sounds we make didn't have a structure to them. They were just ga ga ba ba. They weren't structured. But because they didn't have a structure, the amount that we could communicate was very limited. But as soon as you give language a structure, as soon as you say that certain combinations of sounds have certain definitions. We say, say the combination of sounds, chair, has, has a certain definition. And as soon as we have rules of grammar, then all of a sudden we can express an unlimited amount of ideas. So form isn't always limiting. Sometimes no form is limiting. Sometimes having no form is limiting. And having form expands. You, know, you, can, you can, depends how you are. I mean, just like uh, if you want to get something accomplished. If you want to get something accomplished that needs more than one person, if you have no form to it, it's much harder to get things accomplished than if you create some sort of form, like a team and a leader, or maybe sub-teams. So you, you can actually do more with form than without form. But, but Krishna is also everywhere. But his form is not an ordinary form. Just like when Yasoda looked inside his mouth, she saw the whole universe. And it, it looks like Krishna is just there with a form that has borders to it. And what's really interesting is that she saw herself. She didn't see a vision of herself. She actually saw herself. 
inside Krishna's form. Now, how do you do that? How can you be inside Krishna's form and yet be seeing his form in front of you, although everything is inside of his form? So that's the kind of form he has. He doesn't have a form like mine, like my material form. Or when you sort of try to, to tie a rope around his waist. And he already had a belt on, but she couldn't get the rope to go around his waist. She put it around his waist, and it was, it was a little bit short. Then she tied another rope to the end to put it around. It was still that same distance short. And she tied dozens and dozens and dozens of ropes together that would go around the whole building. And it still was that much too short, although he was wearing a belt. <coughs> So what kind of form is that? What kind of form that Krishna, does Krishna have? That everything's within him. And yet you can see his form. And he can wear clothes that have limits. But yet you can't measure it. So how is that? We're, we're thinking the first element of illusion is time. And one of the next main elements of illusion is space. <coughs> so if we're trying to put Krishna's form into our concepts of time and space, but he's above time and space. So he can exist everywhere and in everything and still have a form. Why not? Otherwise he'd be incomplete. He's got to have everything. If he has everything, that means he has a formless state and also a form state. And he has unlimited forms. Anantarupam. Anantarupam means both that his form is unlimited and that he has an unlimited number of different forms. And his form is also unlimited in the sense that like I can only smell with my nose, I can't smell with my ears, but he can smell with any part of his form. He can do anything with any part of his form that he can do with any other part of his form. And also another nature of his form is that the part is equal to the whole. Like a hologram. Each part can do the functions of the whole. So what kind of form is that? So when we say that Krishna has a form, it's, you know, it's not like the form of this table, or even the form of this form. But if he didn't have a form, then we'd be greater than him because we have something he doesn't have. If he's everything, he must be form also. Because you said he's everything, if he's everything, he must be form. Can't only be formless. And I gave several examples of how as soon as you put a form on something, you actually make it unlimited, like language. As soon as you put a form onto sound, then you can express unlimited things. And sound without form cannot. It's very limited. If you've ever been around little babies, so how much can they express? They have a very hard time expressing almost anything. But as soon as they, as they get the form of language, they can express anything. So don't always think of form in terms of limitation. Form, form does not equal limitation. 
So that's a, a conclusion where the premise is wrong. A form, form means limitation, God is not limited, therefore God has no form. But the premise that form means limitation is wrong. Even in our material experience, often form means unlimited. Form means re re removing the limitations. Okay? So that's logic. Then there's scripture. And there's a lot of evidence in the scripture. And then there's the personal experience of realized souls who see Krishna in a form. So of course you can believe them or not. You have the option to believe them or not. And you can try yourself and see if you see Krishna in a form. Then you can trust your own experience. Do you see Krishna? Everybody sees Krishna. He's in the sun, he's in the air. <coughs> You're not going to take me there, I'm sorry. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> yes. But quite often when I'm chanting, like when I went to the Vrindavan Yatra and I tried to remember, and when um, the lectures were going on, I felt that the pastime was happening. And when I came back, quite often when I'm chanting, I can feel like I can see the past times, or Very whether nice. it's imagination, I don't know. But I can't always have it uh, all the time, but occasionally I do, and it's really like pleasing and you know, nice. happiness comes. But how can Lovely. I maintain that? Mm. How can I maintain it all the time? All right. Well, there's, a, there's a system of practice of meditation that's described in Nectar of Instruction, text 8, purport as to how to make one's inner meditation constant. Is it possible to have it? Of course, that's our goal. Okay. It would be rather disappointing to have an impossible goal. And even if there's some element of imagination or material contamination, that's all right in the beginning. That's expected. That's what I'm thinking. Is it imagination? Maybe to some extent. But that's all right. It'll be mixed to some extent. To whatever extent your consciousness is impure, your meditation will be impure. But that's all right. It's not that you have to wait till you're pure before you can meditate on Krishna's presence. Is it the way to do right chanting? Like just think of his qualities? And his that should naturally happen if you're chanting. Of course. When you're chanting, Krishna's qualities and form and pastimes should naturally come. And at first they will, they will be on the platform of the mind, and gradually they will manifest on the spiritual platform. What is the difference between the platform of mind and spiritual? Is that the feeling coming from heart, or is it speculation? Or what is, how would you know, what is the difference? You'll know. It's like, okay, can you, can you tell that I'm speaking through an, an artificial amplification system? Can you tell now that I'm not? Yeah. How do you know? Sounds different. How exactly? 
How do you know right now that I'm just speaking loudly? And how do you know now that I'm speaking through a microphone? How can you tell the difference between something that's natural and something that's artificial? Uh, how do you know? You can feel it. I uh, think as you speak, yeah, your sound yeah. is much more high pitched, so there it's much more diffused and becomes like normal pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so I can still speak at the same volume. Can you hear me just as well back there now without the mic? I can still speak at the same volume as I can do here. So how do you know the difference? <coughs> sound from your there's some different quality oh, yes, in the sound, isn't there? <coughs> it's hard to describe it. I was reading an article once about people who are professional food tasters. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I, I, I can't remember all the details, I'm so sorry, but they have like 10 or 15 different names for texture and different tastes and it's a whole science and they're trained to be able to recognize different qualities of food and put a name on it. They have their own vocabulary like any group of people. So when they're talking to each when they're when they taste something, they can say, okay, it has this thing and this thing. They can describe it. So I can't do that. But I can still know the difference between tastes. I can know the difference between real fruit juice and chemical juice. I can't describe to you how I know it because I'm not an expert in food tasting, but I know it. I can taste chemical drinks and real fruit drinks. When you say, how do I know? I, don't, I can't tell you how I know, but I know. So it, can you know the difference between the, what's on the mind? But you start with the mind. You have to start with the mind. That's all you got. So you got to start with the mind. And the mind doesn't turn into the spiritual. Krishna is attracted by the mind, by what we do with the mind, and he manifests the spiritual. On very high platforms of focusing on the mind, which is called samadhi, uh, one will think that it's spiritual. And then Krishna is attracted to that and gives you real samadhi, uh, which is a very different quality. Yes? Um, you just said that you, you know the difference between artificial drink and a real one because someone told you at first that this is what a fresh one is like. It could be. Like, generally, if today I'd never know the difference between the two and someone told me that the artificial one okay that's fine I, I, I agree with you you're very smart I was thinking is anybody going to say that I was just waiting is anyone going to say that okay so let's say all your life all you've ever had was artificial juice you've never had anything else and then someday some, one day somebody gave you real fruit juice from a tree ripened organically grown locally grown fruit tree I guarantee you you tell the difference Guarantee, absolutely guarantee. You know why I know? Because it happened to me. I actually wanted to ask you who you are, like, what's your background? Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the great existential question of life, right? Who are you? Know, like, <laughs> how did you get into this? Because I'm not into this. This is my first proper, like, in our group discussion, and I've heard about this a lot. I but I just want to say something about fruit. <laughs> so I was, must have been about 20 years old. And I went with some devotees uh, to a fruit orchard. One of them worked in a fruit orchard, and they said that after the owner picked all the fruit, there were some left on the trees or that had fallen to the ground, and he said, you guys from the temple can come and just collect them. So those were all tree-ripened fruit. 
So we went to the orchard, it was peaches. We collected all the peaches, and we were bringing them back to the temple for the program. So my oldest son was a, was a baby at that time, and he was hungry. So I offered one of the peaches in the vehicle and gave it to him, and he didn't finish it. And so I finished it. And I realized that that was the first time in my life I'd ever actually tasted, tasted real fruit. So even though I hadn't tasted anything like that before, as soon as I tasted the first time, I was able immediately to tell the qualitative difference. Later on, we moved to a house that had a peach tree. And after that, it was very difficult for me to buy peaches from a shop. It was, it was almost painful. So even if you've never experienced it before, once you experience it, you know this is a different quality. How did I get involved? That's a very long story. Um, is anybody else interested? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How long? I mean, I've spent an hour and a half telling the story, so I can try to make it. Tell us the, like, the one thing that really kind of... Reading Bhagavad Gita. What message you carry with you from Bhagavad Gita? What main message do you carry? When I first read Bhagavad Gita? That first yeah. time when it changed my life? No, then... Is anyone interested in more than that, or should I just leave it as reading by Gita? Do you want to hear any more? Yeah, more. Okay, okay. Uh, I'll try to make it very short. Let's see. So from the time, my earliest memory of being interested in spirituality was when I was four. And I was talking to my mother, and I said, why are we Jewish? And she said, because my mother is Jewish. And I said, well, why is she Jewish? She said, because her mother is Jewish. And I said, well, that's not a good reason. <laughs> I remember where we had the conversation. I said, we should do something because it's true, not just because your mother does it. And anytime anybody asked me, what do you want to do in life? I said, I want to find God. I was very attracted to India when I was eight. So I grew up in New York City, very much like Central I grew up in Central Manhattan. And by the time I was eight, I decided I believed in reincarnation, although I didn't understand it very well. And I had maps of India all over my wall, and little, and I didn't know anybody from India. Either. I had little dolls in my room with saris and stuff. And when I was nine, I asked my mother if I could wear a sari. <laughs> Again, we didn't know India friends. She found somebody who visited India and who made me a sewn sari out of saffron silk cloth. Wow. <laughs> pretty far out. Um, then, when I was, my sister and her family lived very close to the first temple in America on the Lower East Side. I used to visit her all the time. And there was a man who had recorded Srila Prabhupada chanting. And he, he made a record album. Probably you don't know what record albums are, but anyway, then. Record. Vinyl. You know those yes. vinyl things. Okay, so he made one called The Happening Album. And he wanted to sell it, of course. That's why he made it. So he had a little shop called the Krishna Shop, and he would play it all the time to sell it. And he had this posters from India of Krishna and Vishnu. So I would often wander around the Lower East Side and I would go into his shop and listen to Prabhupada chanting on the recording. So I did that. I was 12. So I would do that regularly. Although I didn't meet Shula Prabhupada then. My sister's husband met Prabhupada, but he didn't take me to meet Prabhupada. Anyway, what to do? He took me to meet Jerry Garcia and Janice Joplin. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't take me to meet Shula Prabhupada. <laughs> and, um, 
then when I, I think it was about 14 when I heard the Govinda on the radio, the song Govinda, which we play here in the temple. I really wanted to get the album. I actually had dreams about getting the album. I finally bought it. I had to go to the biggest record store in New York and they had to look in their warehouse to find it. It wasn't, it wasn't easy to find. And it had pictures in it. It had pictures that were also on the cover of Krishna book were inside of the album. And I read the philosophy inside, but I couldn't understand it. I couldn't make heads or tails out of it. It didn't make any sense to me at all. But I put the pictures up on my wall and then when I was, I was in secondary school and one time when I was in the library, there was another student who was reading Krishna book. And he had the, the same picture was on the front of the book that I had in the record album. So I, I, I knew the student's name was Bill Trengrove, but I didn't really know him. He was like a friend of a friend. There's somebody in my school. And I said, can I borrow the book? And he said, well, you can look at it now in the library. So I looked at it, just looked at the pictures and stuff in the library. And then I gave it back to him at the end of the study hall, and he said, would you like to come with me to the temple? So I said, temple? Sure. I'm kind of an adventurous kind of person. I'm a high-risk-taking, adventurous person. So, uh, you know, my mother didn't like the idea. What temple? Where is it? Where are you going? What is this all about, you know? My father was very liberal. And he said, sure, if you want to go, it's fine. Just by yourself. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. We lived in North Jersey then. Why well, went with this boy? So we took a bus into New York and then took the uh, underground. I went to the temple. And I loved it. You know, I went in and I said, yeah, I, I love it. And I, one of the devotees, someone named Jadarani, she talked to me for about two hours. And when we left, I said, I said to this boy, I said, this is what I, I said, I agree with everything that she said, but I couldn't explain it. I said, someone else asked me what you said. I couldn't explain it. And we went back the next week and I said, uh, what do I have to do to join? And by my bad karma, the person didn't say, chant Hare Krishna, follow the regular principles, come to the temple. She said, we have no more room in the ashram. You'll have to get your own apartment. <laughs> <laughs> and I was 14 years old. You know, so I was like, get my own apartment. Okay, well, I guess I can't be involved with this. That was how I took it. And I got one book, Easy Journey to Other Planets, because I thought it was about mystic yoga. And I read like three pages and saw it wasn't about mystic yoga. And that was like that. <laughs> so I would still listen to the record and if anyone asked me after that what do I believe I'd say I believe in, in Hare Krishna and they'd say do you practice it and I'd say no I can't <laughs> <laughs> that went on for a while and I had a conception of God not being a person so I definitely thought God was just everywhere and everything he wasn't a person he didn't have a form also I was very indoctrinated in that by my own Jewish upbringing but during that time, I studied at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and I asked the rabbis questions about, you know, why did, why did God get angry, and then why did Moses talk him out of being angry, and how could he write on the tablets with his fingers, and all kinds of questions like that, and they told me to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> at which point I decided that I was going to kind of expand my, uh, my reach. So then I was, in, I was doing some sort of made-up meditation regularly. There's something I had concocted, as we would say in the Hare Krishna movement. And I thought that my goal of meditation was to merge with God, because I didn't think God had a form. So I was trying to merge with God. And one time I actually felt like I was, that was going to happen. And I got very frightened. 
and I realized I didn't want to merge with anybody or anything. <laughs> then I wanted to keep my individuality. And when I realized that, I thought, well, I guess I don't really want to be spiritual. Because I thought being spiritual and losing my individuality were the same thing. So when I realized I didn't want to lose my individuality, I thought, well, I guess my whole life where I thought I wanted to be spiritual, I really don't. I guess I really just am a materialist. So then I tried very hard to be a materialist for a few months. I really put my effort and energy into it. I threw myself headlong into being a materialist. So after, after two or three months of that, I, was, I just started saying, you know, I don't know who you are, God. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you are. But you got to help me. This is not working. And at that time, my I was in that's when I was in university. So my best friend's boyfriend's roommate had Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita. And one time, when I was with my good friend, when she was visiting her boyfriend, I saw the Bhagavad Gita on the floor, and his roommate was there. And, he's, and I said, "Oh, is that the Hare Krishna book?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Can I borrow it?" And he said, "Sure." He said, "Somebody gave it to me on the street. Never looked at it." <laughs> <laughs> So I took it back to my room, and I didn't sleep, and I didn't eat, and I just kept reading and reading and reading and reading, and I said, this is what I always wanted. I felt like someone had taken everything that was in my heart and, and put it on the page and made sense out of it. And I said, yeah, this is what I'm looking for. And then we had, I was in a college that had a, a work-study program. It was in Vermont, which is a very cold place in America. And in January and February, they closed down the school. And you have to get a job, either paid or unpaid. So I got a, a volunteer job at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. So when I was there, I thought, let me find a temple. Maybe I could live at a temple. And it was an address in the record that I had. But it was an old address. The temple had moved. And you know, this is inconceivable to those of you, those of you who've grown up with the internet. But you had to do things like call directory assistants. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you, you had to call directory assistants for Chicago. And of course, they weren't in Chicago anymore. So they couldn't, if I wanted to, I had to know where they were in order to look right. for them. Yeah. You understand? They had moved to a suburb called Evanston. But I would have had to call directory assistants for Evanston to find them. So, you know, I just got one man called Radhakrishna. Because I was looking for the Radhakrishna temple. So I called him and he said, you want to come to my house? <laughs> <laughs> so then I, I figured, okay, I guess there's no temple here anymore. And I was going to my job. And I was chanting from the record album, Sri Upanishad. And if you want to ask why I didn't chant Hare Krishna, it's because there was no translation of the Hare Krishna mantra in the record. And I didn't want to say something that I didn't understand. So, I understand, so I what kind of person I am. So I, I didn't want any blind following so because the Ishopanishad was explained, I was chanting that. So I was going on the, on the train every day to my job and at my job, and I was chanting Sri Ishopanishad. So two weeks before, oh, and then going there, you know, I was in, in university, and I was, I was 17, and naturally thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. And I was watching the other people on the train and thinking, I don't want to be like any of them. Uh. You know, they're all like this... <laughs> and I thought, and I thought, well, you know, okay, I'll have some career in life, and it'll be exciting. And then after ten, fifteen years, I'll look like these guys. And I, I, I thought, there's, there's nothing that I want to do with my life. There's nothing that's really going to be exciting. 
And I decided that I wanted to do something where I would wake up every morning happy to do what I was doing. I was also looking for a way to be spiritual 24 hours a day because I was doing my little meditation thingy. I, I went back to that. But I, I couldn't, I didn't know how to expand that. You know, I had to sit quietly and go into a trance. And how do you do that in the supermarket, the hypermarket, or whatever you call it? You know, how do I do it in the shower? How do I do it when I'm eating? I didn't know how to, be, I wanted to expand my spirituality into 24 hours a day. And I wanted to do something that I would still like doing after 15 or 20 years. So that's what, that's what my criteria I was looking for. So after six weeks there, I had two more weeks there, I found one of the devotees on the train. When I was coming home from work, there was a devotee on the train. Turned out that the temple was two blocks from where I was staying, but the train went between where I was and the temple. So I didn't see them on the, they would get on the train, and I would get, you know, I didn't see them. And uh, how do we put this politely? He wasn't a very nice person, this devotee. He didn't like women. How <laughs> else to put it? He still doesn't like women. <laughs> and he was very nasty to me. I, I said, oh, Hare Krishna! Hare Krishna. <laughs> Do you want a book? I said, I don't carry money with me. I said, I only carry a, a dime to make a phone call. I, I don't travel with money. Yeah, right. I said, no, really, honey. <laughs> and then he gives me a card and he says, you know, we have a program on Sunday. And I said, well, I work on Sunday. He goes, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, people make propaganda like that we're a cult and that we bring people in by being nice to them. Anyway, it didn't happen to me. So, <laughs> then I said, you know, is there a temple nearby? And he just handed me this on the card. So I realized it was right near where I was staying, and I went there. Uh, it, was, it was the winter. I had big boots, laced boots. Didn't want to take them off. So one of the devotees, and very nice this time, a very nice devotee, who's still a very nice devotee, uh, he came to the door and, I, and he said, what do you want? I said, can I buy some incense? So he said, sure, and he gave me some incense. I wouldn't take my boots. And he talked to me for two hours. He was preaching to me for two hours. And I said, but I don't want to accept any authority. And that was the mood at the time, those of you who were my age. That was, you know, don't trust anybody over 30, don't accept any authority, everybody's their own authority. That was the... And he said, you're already accepting so many authorities. And I knew that, but I thought it was a secret. <laughs> <laughs> and when he said that, I realized, oops. He said, why don't you find a good authority and accept them instead of trying to take a little bit from all different authorities? So I thought about it, you know, and uh, came back, and I went to the town president, and I said, you know, I want to live in the, in the temple. And he said, so we have, you know, no meat eating, no intoxication, no illicit sex, no gambling. Can you do that? And I said, well, I'd like to. And he said, we get up early in the morning. And I said, I've always gotten up early in the morning. My father trained me like that. So then I stayed that night at the temple, and uh, had an interesting experience trying to put on a sari. <laughs> Anyway, the next morning I went to the morning program where everyone's chanting and dancing. I said, yes, that's what I want. I want to get up and have a party every day. <laughs> that's what I'm looking for. And then I just love the philosophy. You know, I love the classes. 
And, when, and the philosophy gave me a way to be spiritual 24 hours a day. And I said, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. So I stayed at the temple for two weeks. Then I went, then my work time was over, and I was still a minor. So I went back to college, and I finished the semester of college, waited till my 18th birthday, and then I dropped out of school, which my mother really didn't like. Of course, later I went back and got my PhD. <laughs> she didn't live to see that, unfortunately. And then uh, I came and I moved back into the ashram. And here I am. So how about your first meeting with Prabhupada? My first meeting with Srila Prabhupada. Okay, well, I moved in the ashram to stay on June 17, 73. I stayed in February 73, and I moved in to stay in June. Then I got initiated through the mail in December of 73, without asking to be initiated. <laughs> That's another story. Then I met Jill Prabhupada for the first time in the summer of 1974, when he came to Chicago for our first Rathiyatra. My father, my husband, and I all got to go into Srila Prabhupada's room and meet with him. But I'm not going to tell that story. Yes? What's that little meditation thing? Why do you want to know a meditation thing that was nonsense? Because you brought it up. You mentioned that. So why? But it was just nonsense. You said you were going to merge with God. I felt like that. What was that going to happen? Well, it didn't. (laughs) But I felt like it was going to happen. I felt like I was on the verge of it. So what, was it yoga or something? It was something I made up. I mean, I have some idea now of what it was, but I don't really want to talk about it. Because it's just nonsense. It's not helpful. I mean, now I now that I know something about stuff, I have some idea about what I was actually doing. What was it? I, it's really not important. Why Why do you want to know? What good will it do? But what good will it do you? What benefit will it do for you? If you want to learn how to merge with God, dude, you can go to another society and learn that. I'm not going to teach you. <laughs> it's not a positive thing. It's not going to help you. There are people who teach that. Yeah, they can teach you. I don't want to teach you. Can I ask a question? But if you tell me what good it will do for you, then I might tell you. I don't I don't see what benefit it will do for you. It's good to merge with God. Hmm? It's good to merge with God. If that's what you want to do. That option is available. I would not recommend it. Krishna doesn't recommend it, but the option is available. You can do it. I, I'd rather just have a loving relationship with him rather than merge with him. But isn't that the ultimate? No, not at all. To be aware of him and be... Oh no, there's much higher goals than that. Much, much, much higher. How do you build a relation with Krishna? What do you know what your relation is? Our basic relationship with him is as a part and parcel and as a, as a loving servant, as a, as a giver. Do you develop that relation to something else? Something else? Some other relation? Or does well, everyone, everyone has a particular kind of relationship with Krishna. We each have an individual relationship with Krishna. Yes, that awakens. How would you know what it is, or does it come to you? Same question you asked me before. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quite understand your answer. As, it's like asking, how do you wake up? <clears throat> or, you know, none of us here are children. So we all went from a process of being children to being an adult. How did you know when you were an adult? 
I mean, it wasn't just like one particular day, although we, legally there's one day when you become an adult. But as far as physically, psychologically, emotionally, at what day did you become an adult, and how did you know that you became an adult? And how did you get a sense of your personality and who you are and what you want to do and what kind of relationships you want to have? How do you explain that process? I mean, there are all kinds of psychologists and psychiatrists who explain that process. So we can also explain spiritually that process of waking up to who we are and, and reviving our actual spiritual identity. But it's something like that. And how do you know? At first, it's confusing. I mean, I remember when I was like 12, 13, it was a little confusing, or maybe a lot of confusing. Who am I? What, what kind of person am I? What do I like? What do I do? What, you know? You understand? What do I want to do with my life? What kinds of things do I enjoy? What kind of people do I want to be with? I had to discover that, and it gradually unfolds. So spiritually, is something like that. Can I ask a question? Somebody in the back had a question. Though. Somebody? Okay. Yes. Uh, I read uh, some books written by Srila Prabhupada, and it says somewhere that there are five types of love, of loving relationship of this Krishna. Uh, and the most important is conjugal. I wouldn't say the most important, the most intimate. The most intimate. Uh, can you explain exactly what this means? Because me having a conjugal relationship with Krishna is very strange. And how does this go or work with having a husband? <laughs> how does it work with having a husband? Yeah, I mean, isn't it a competition? <laughs> <laughs> to the answer to your second question, no. How does that work? We're talking about our relationship in our original spiritual form. We're not talking about our relationship with Krishna in this form. It's not that in this material body you marry Krishna. Krishna's not interested in enjoying a body made of bones and blood and muscles. And it means our one's, in one's original spiritual form. That one can have Krishna as a husband. And what does it mean, having a conjugal relationship with God? With what, what it means? It means that one has the relationship with God that is the original, pure, spiritual form of sexuality and romantic love. The, the relationship and the activities from which the perversion and the twisting of sexuality and romantic love exist in this world. The actual thing. Does that apply to guys as well? Yes. Because the guys, gals, that's just temporary manifestation in how we're incarnated in this life. So once we... So what body you have in this life is not indicative of whether or not you have a conjugal relationship with Krishna. If you have a conjugal relationship with Krishna, it's in a spiritual female form. But just like you can have a friendly relationship with Krishna in a spiritual male form, even if in this life you happen to be a woman. We've all been men and women in many different lives. That's not our real self. This is just a costume. This is just a, an act. We go from one life to another putting on different costumes and having different personalities that we pretend to be for the sake of different material desires. So our real spiritual form is our actual identity. And yes, we can have one of five. Those are five main relationships. There's many, 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 many subcategories. 
and each of us has our own individual relationship with Krishna. Does that help? A little bit. Uh, it's interesting because sometimes Srila Prabhupada would just say, it's not at all sexual. And other times he'd say, it's the original form of sexuality. He would say both. So, it's just like even the parental relationship with Krishna or the friendship relationship with Krishna. It's nothing like what we experience here. It's the actual form. It's the difference between a peach and a photograph of a peach. How can you really compare it? So if you try to, if you try to understand the spiritual by the material, you, you, you really can't, like, like trying to understand form. You can get some idea. Does it relate with the feeling that's coming from the heart? Yes. Actually, it is the feeling rather than anything else. Yes. Yes. So you'd feel it deep down. Yes. Like something is coming. Yes. And it's not really like a selfish feeling. Correct. Exactly. What if, what if you feel it and it happens? What if you feel what and what happens? I say, what if you feel that feeling and then it, and then it happens? What happens? As in, feel what feeling? What happens? You feel Ananda. Or... What if you feel Ananda? That's great. That's all about <laughs> And then what happens? Or, or what if you had like a premonition and then... Premonition of what? If, this is a totally different question. Um, okay. What if you have like a deja vu and then it kind of happens that's something completely different I'm, I'm not talking about the you're not talking about spiritual things what if you have some paranormal activity yeah, and <laughs> yeah. then you do okay. some people have paranormal okay. thank you okay can I ask something from your morning class yeah sure so you mentioned about those uh, factory schools yeah okay um, and then you mentioned how it helps, or how better it is to have individual attention for children yes. rather than have a group. Yes. So at that point in the morning, we didn't have time for, for questions, so I just kept it in my mind. Okay. If you have two minutes, you can answer. Yeah. Um, oh, I think I was supposed to end two minutes ago. Okay. Okay. It's up to you. It's up to me. Okay. You can take one question. Sure, especially if it's about that. Yeah. So this question is about homeschooling. Okay. And uh, she's my wife, Indaleka. Oh. And we've been doing a lot of research about you know, homeschooling. And we've come across this group of devotees, and it's actually uh, become like two groups on this concept. Like, there's a group of people who are up for it and say it's good because of this, this, this. Okay. And there are certain people who are against, and they've listed points why it is not good. Okay. I think you're one of Devotees? Really devotees, because they think they're sending to like outside schools may not be that helpful, especially in Western countries, so let's do homeschooling. Okay. So I want to take your view on homeschooling, parents taking up the responsibility, how, how do you see it, and is there something that only mothers should do it, or even fathers or would-be fathers are, are equally eligible for it? The kids, I, the kids I've met who've been homeschooled, whether devotees or not devotees, overall, I mean, just anecdotal evidence, have really high character. I'm very impressed with homeschooled kids. What do you mean by character? Uh, how they relate to other people, that they're real gentlemen and ladies, they have very nice etiquette, um, they often have developed the ability to do independent learning, to take initiative, to take responsibility. What do you think that is? 
I mean, I could guess. Because there's so many different kinds of homeschooling. My guess is that it's because the schooling is very much tailored to them and they're in a natural environment. The modern schools are a very unnatural environment. I mean, just segregating people by age is very peculiar. To segregate people by age and have everybody who's at the same age do the same thing. There's no scientific basis for that at all. It doesn't, that's not, that doesn't comport with human psychology or social dealings or thousands and thousands of years of history of training human beings. It's a very new development. It was done in the Industrial Revolution when all of a sudden you had, you know, 2,000 kids in one small area who had to go to school. And the educators at that time intentionally said, let's run the schools like a factory. They were not educators. They didn't know anything about education. They didn't know anything about psychology. They said, let's run the schools like a factory. That was purposeful. That was their goal. And now that we've had factory-run schools for so long, we think it's traditional. <laughs> so in homeschooling, you really can tailor the education to your styles and your children's styles, and they can go, you know, they can go at the pace that they need, they can learn in the way that they want. There are certain things you can do in a homeschool you can't do in a school, and there are certain things you can do in a school that you can't do in a homeschool. My suggestion is if you, home, if you homeschool, that instead of trying to imitate a school, that you actually look at what are the unique advantages of homeschooling and capitalize on those. You know, you can set your own schedule. By the way, you can teach children in two or three hours a day everything they learn in school, because most of the time the school's wasted. Yeah. Getting, getting, in, getting in the queues, sitting down, waiting until everybody settles down, disciplining this kid, disciplining that kid going from one class to the other. I mean, there's just incredible amount of wasted time. And a lot of what's taught in schools is not the academic content. A lot of what's taught in schools is how to be a good shudra, how to be a good factory worker. That was the purpose of the modern school system. That was what it was designed to do. It was designed to train people to feed into the industrialized society as factory workers. Now, even though that's no longer perhaps the main purpose of education, that's what that system was designed to do. So all of the queuing up and the bells and the... It had that as its purpose. It takes up a lot of the time in school, intentionally, because that's actually the majority of the education that's going on, not the academic stuff. Academic stuff is very secondary, frankly. How much of the academic stuff do you use as an adult that you learned in school? Probably 20, 30% max. So what were they teaching them for? Interesting. Um, if there's a really good school that that's, will help children in their Krishna consciousness, then schools are wonderful. I mean, I ran schools for about 20 years. I like schools. I'm not opposed to schools. Right now, all my school-age grandchildren are being homeschooled. So within the homeschooling, then you, you as you said, you capitalize on the things which you can only do in homeschool. We, I, I wouldn't say only do, but I'd say you capitalize on the benefits of homeschooling. You know, your benefits are you can set your own schedule, you can do in two hours a day what the school's do in six, you can tailor your education to the interests and the needs of your children. You can do the, the most important thing that schools cannot do, and that makes the really big difference between whether education works or not, you can, you can connect education to real life. <clears throat> In schools, it's almost impossible to do that. 
you have to do it very artificially. You know, you, you set up, well, pretend that we're doing this and pretend that we're doing that and write a paper about this. But in, in, at home, you can actually do it. You know, you can actually do some ecological project and you can actually do some writing about it. I'm taking my homeschooled 15-year-old grandson with me all over the world. And so he's studying history and geography partially by being there. You know, I couldn't take him out of a regular school for eight months. Do you think the responsibility lies mainly with the, the mother or oh, the father? Oh, that's very individual. Oh, that's so... That's very individual. It's not like a thumb rule, but only mother should do it. So I heard a few devotees, senior devotees telling me it's only for mothers. So. Where's their scriptural basis for that? They said, can only mothers go to school? In fact, one of the most famous American homeschooling families, how many kids do they have? Six, seven? And the mother died. Uh, she had got sick and she died like within 24 hours, one of those kind of illnesses. And he homeschooled the kids by himself. He developed a whole system. Plus they run a farm, plus he's a college professor. <laughs> and he had like two-year-old twins at the time his wife died. So certainly, or, or many families, the father teach some, teaches some things and the mother teaches another. Because you have your own schedule. So you can have some classes at 6 o'clock at night if you want. You know, if the father's really good in some areas, why doesn't he, he can teach those classes at 6 at night when he comes home from work? Or you can have some classes just on the weekends. You don't, have, you don't have to do things the way it's done in the school. And you said your grandchildren is 15, around 15? My oldest grandson, yeah, he's and 15. he's almost reached the stage of what they call GCSE, and you find him no problem blending into the normal expected academic expertise? He's right now two years ahead of the Sanders. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. So that's why I could take him traveling for eight months, because he's already two years ahead. <laughs> I'm not, I didn't bring like all his textbooks on the road. All right. We're focusing you know, on on English, geography, and history while we're on the road. But our kids are actually slowed down by the system, I think. Oh, the system intends to slow you down. Ah. That's their purpose. <laughs> They're trying to train you to be factory workers. Where's the nurture then? It's supposed Not to be nurture. I'm concerned with that. <laughs> so if you just try to tweak the system, if you, mm. if you don't, you know, if you forget what the system was designed for and you just try to tweak it and make it more humane, it doesn't work so well. You actually need to go back to the original systems that were designed for sane societies. I don't know if everybody here is interested. You really don't want to get me talking about this stuff. <laughs> well, I'll just go on and on and on and on and on. I don't know if it's of interest to everybody. Yes, sir. Sorry, I want to just come in. You just been talking about homeschooling? Well, no, that just this one gentleman. We don't have to ask a question about homeschooling. You can ask whatever you like. <laughs> okay. Well, he wanted to ask about Was there something you do want to ask about homeschool? No. No. Okay. You wanted to leave if we were talking about homeschool? No. Not that either. Okay, I'll pick up guessing. Yes, sir. Where do you think is the position of God consciousness in this day and world, in this day and age, in the world? Like, I don't know what you mean by the position of God consciousness. In a sense, um, in the class down in, in Temple Hall. Uh, you, you did mention about, like, you know, uh, pseudo-religious principles, like, you know, so-called leader of the society are um, implementing just for the mere purpose of gathering followers, fame, you know, all that thing. So, and obviously atheism is on the rise, and obviously impersonalism... In certain is groups. Sorry? In certain groups. Yeah, yeah. There are certain parts of the world population are, where religion is on the rise. 
certain parts of the world population that atheism is on the rise. But then again, see this religion that you're saying which are on the rise, are they really propounding the personal aspect of uh, God or are they propounding the impersonal aspect of the God? Because like, you know, most of this rise is the religion that you mentioned. As well as, you know, all of most, this. Most religious and spiritual groups in the world today are propounding some kind of impersonalism. Yeah, so where do we as like uh, the, the propounder of personalism stand in this chaotic situation in the world? Like, you know, and, uh, and I don't still quite understand. He's saying, do we have a chance? Do, are, you, are you asking that? Do we have a chance? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, uh, honestly, even, even within the Vedic culture as well, uh, impersonalism is very strong. Um, like, you know, few personalism. It's there. Yeah, there is. Definitely. Yeah. What oh, what's nice about the Vedic culture is it has something for everybody. It's not the kind, the, the Vedic religion does not say, you have to believe this and you have to do this now in this life or you go to hell forever. It's not the Vedic religion. The Vedic religion is very, very broad. I mean, it even has scriptures for people in ignorance who want to worship ghosts and spirits and get black powers. That's how broad it is. But wouldn't that... Plus, you know, people can worship the, the devas, the celestials, and go to the heavenly planets. They can merge with God. They can develop yogic cities like that one gentleman wanted to do. He left in disappointment. <laughs> and, you know, and one can get a personal relationship with God in many different ways. One can, with, as Narayana, as Ramachandra, as Krishna, as Krishna and Dwarka, as Krishna and Vrindavan. And there's so many different uh, possibilities. And there's different kinds, even of attaining bhakti. There's the direct bhakti path, there's the yoga ladder. I mean, there's, there's, it's a system that could actually be applied to the whole planet. Truly, but uh, see... Whereas I don't see that the other systems in the world today could actually be applied to the whole planet because they're very narrow. You have every, every single person has to believe exactly the same dharma, dogma and everyone has to follow exactly the same program. You know, and, and I, I don't see that as ever flying in the world Personally, in general. coming from a, a Judaism background and coming to the bhakti... What I didn't you? mention in my life story that I accepted Jesus when I was 14. <laughs> so, what difference did you particularly find in teachings of uh, Judaism and teaching, like in, in a sense, as in practice-wise and the ultimate absolute truth? How is it mentioned in Judaism in difference to the, you know, the bhakti cult? Cult? I mean, bhakti. Sometimes cult. Cult of Vrindavan. Cult of Vrindavan. Cult is short for cultures. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that. Uh, I, what I found is after studying Srila Prabhupada's books, when I went back to the Bible, to the Old Testament, I found that there was ample evidence all over the place for the philosophy that Srila Prabhupada was teaching us. So like in the Song of Solomon, there's a description in the sixth canto, I believe, with Maharaj Chitraketu having a vision of Sankarsana, an expansion of Krishna. And you can compare that to Solomon's description of God. It's eerie. It's so similar. Now, the Jewish and Christian scholars look at the Song of Solomon and go, what do we do with this? <laughs> they don't know what to do with it. Um, it's very erotic, by the way. And uh, just your question about conjugal love. And they can't figure it out. What's Solomon doing writing an erotic poem to God? And why is he describing God with a form? You know, they, just, they can't get it at all. 
so they can all day, oh, it's a metaphor. So that's what they do to it. Uh, there's so much evidence that God has it for me. It says in Exodus that Moses saw God face to face as a friend speaks with another friend. But if you go today to Jewish scholars, they'll say, God has no face. That's if you think God has a face, you're an offender. I was raised that if you even think. touch the idea, even smell the idea that God might have a form, you were the greatest offender. See, they can't even call him by the name. No, they can't even call. They call him Hashem, which means the name. Yeah. Yeah. And if you you can't even write God, you have to write G dash D. You can't yeah. write the word God, and you like, can't yeah. say any name of God. You have to just say the name. His name is the name. So you know you have that God wrote on the tablets of stone with his finger. I mean, well, gosh, that means he has got a finger. Right? See, this is what I find very contradictory in the sense when one one aspect they say they don't have God to, God can't have any form. Then see all but it says about. Moses saw God face to face as a friend speaks with another friend. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing Srila Prabhupada says all the time. You can see Krishna face to face, you can talk to him. That God's always want he wants to talk to you. Sakura. Not just Sakurasti. Anyway. Krishna's a friend of everyone. In Elderas is Krishna's friend. See this offending part. Do you think it is just a made up that they don't, they just are like Okay, well what happened in Jewish history yeah. is something very similar to what happened in the history of the Indian Shastras. Just like we had our Sankaracharya who went to the scriptures of, of the Vedas and he went through and he reinterpreted everything impersonally. So there was a Jewish scholar called by Maimonides or the Ramban, who in his time was a heretic. And he went through the, the Torah, the five books of Moses, and he reinterpreted everything impersonally. So at first he was considered a heretic. And gradually he became the, the accepted authority. So now within Judaism, the topmost authority is Maimonides. Now there was a counter-movement to Maimonides by a man called the Baal Shem Tov, which means the keeper of the good name. And what Baal Shem Tov did is he took out parties in the street chanting and dancing names of God from the Bible. And this was at the same time that Mahaprabhu was on the planet. Now his followers, unfortunately, gradually also became impersonalists. So although he still has followers, they're called the Hasids, and, uh, but, but they've taken up more. Although he came to counter Maimonides, they haven't, it hasn't maintained itself. So the only people now, as this is a generalization, obviously, as individuals, but the only group now that will really understand within Judaism that God is a person is those who follow the Kabbalah. So I remember uh, some students of the Kabbalah coming to one of our temples and talking to me, and they said, you know, in the Kabbalah it says that there's reincarnation and that God is a blue boy. And so we come to your temple. The Kabbalah is, uh, is only supposed to be taught to rabbis, male rabbis who are over the age of 40 and who have gone through certain purificatory processes. So it's not general knowledge. It's not taught to the people in general. People in general are taught basically just piety and righteousness and dharma and 613 rules of right living. And their focus is on being good in this world. They don't worry much about what comes after death. I mean, again, if they talk about an eternal world, they just call it the world to be. You know, 
So we worship the name, and we go to the world to be. And it's all very vague and fuzzy. Yeah, very. Very, very. Can't put a finger on it. No, you can't put a finger on it. But if, if after studying Srila Prabhupada's books, you go back and look yeah. at their scriptures, it's quite interesting. The same happens with the New Testament. You know, after you read Srila Prabhupada's books and get that perspective, and you go back and read the New Testament, you're like, oh, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. But if you talk to the Christians, they don't... No. That's not the understanding that they have. So they'll talk, the Christians will talk about the soul, but they don't understand the soul the way we understand the soul at all. You know, it's... it's with some rare exceptions. I mean, you have people in Christianity, you have, you know, say, St. Francis of Assisi, who was definitely at least Brahmin realized, if not Bhagavan realized. You have um, was it St. John of the Cross, who talked about conjugal relationship with God, and who was uh, tortured and persecuted for that, executed for that. And who was the one? There was one who talk, had talked about parental relationship. We talked about seeing, you know, God as a child. Anyway, so there's, you know, in Christianity we find also, and in Judaism too, and in Islam also, you will find individuals who somehow went beyond the bounds of the restrictions of what was being taught in their religious system. Just like sometimes in elementary school there's a child who's functioning at a PhD level in mathematics. Happens sometimes. Yes? I think we have a, a similar question maybe to what probably was um, maybe kind of pointing towards. Um, from class this morning, you were talking about the Brahma Samhita. Mm. And Brahma Samhita was spoken by Brahma. Yes. Who is the original speaker of the Vedas. Yes. And the impersonalists, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But like you know, followers of Shankaracharya, they they accept the Vedas and something else as well. But the Vedas and I feel the scriptures as like evidence. You know, that's correct. Uh, if it's there, then it's right. It's we accept it. So what I'll get is the person who spoke the Vedas is speaking this Brahma Samhita, and he's saying very clearly, you know, Krishna is the supreme. So their supreme authority is saying it, so why don't they accept it, even though, you know, he says it, why don't they? They'll accept it in a different way. Okay. They'll, they'll reinterpret it. Just like even Sankaracharya said, you know, Bajagovinda, 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 Mudamate. You fools, worship Govinda. But they'll take it in a different way. They'll take it that I'm worshiping Govinda to merge with him. I'm, worship, I'm worshiping Govinda as a temporary expediency, as part of a process that I'll eventually give up worship of Govinda and worship. Even that verse Ishwara Paramakrishna. But, but they understand it differently. How, how do they understand that verse? They understand Krishna as ultimately meaning Brahman rather than um, instead of understanding that Brahman rests on Krishna, they understand that Krishna is a temporary material manifestation of the Brahman. Mm -hmm. they, they understand Krishna as the manifestation of Brahman in ignorance. <laughs> uh, it's explained very nicely in Ayurveda chapter seven. So that's how they understand things. They understand all individuality as manifestations of ignorance. So they understand our sense of individuality and our sense of God having an individual form, an individual personality, as a superimposition of ignorance on Brahman. And of course the question is then, how can there be both ignorance and Brahman? If everything's non-dual, then how is there dual? Where does the ignorance come from? 
And they're saying ignorance can cover Brahman. Well, that means ignorance is stronger than Brahman. So if everything is Brahman, non-dual, and Brahman is supreme, how, where does this other thing come from? And how does it cover Brahman? But you have to remember, and Krishna gives everybody intelligence and understanding for what they want. I mean, how can you look at the world and be an atheist? There's only one way I can see you can look at the world and be an atheist, that you'd understand why there's suffering. The mystery of suffering. How can there be a God if there's suffering? Apparently unjust suffering. But as far as, is there a brain behind the creation? How can you look at the creation and deny that there's a brain? How is it possible? But people do. How do they do that? I, I actually don't understand how they do that, but they do it. Right. From my own, you know, like, growing up, it seemed like most, most of us were just, you know, we don't even think about that thing, you know, as life goes on, it's like, mm -hmm. you know. Yes, well, that's modern society is training you in the schools and the media not to even think about those things. So there's, there's four aspects to curriculum. One is the planned curriculum, one is the taught curriculum, one is the hidden curriculum, one is the null curriculum. The planned is what you say you're doing. What you put in nice little folders and brochures, and this applies to all areas of life, by the way. What you say you're doing. The taught curriculum, that's what you actually do. And those two things are very rarely the same. Then there's what we call the hidden curriculum. That's what you do indirectly, like the bells and the cues. And you know, you don't come out and say we're training the children to be factory workers, although they did say that 150 years ago. <laughs> they don't say that anymore. But that's what they're training them to do with all the bells and the lines and the. You understand? That's hidden. Hidden curriculum is also what kind of illustrations are in the books. Like when I went to school. All the pictures were of white Anglo-Saxon children, and all the names were Anglo-Saxon in all the school books. And everybody lived in suburbia. <laughs> yeah. Everybody was middle class. And now they've made a deliberate attempt to have you know, pictures that show diversity and names of diversity and diversity of living situations and cultures and so many things. That's a hidden curriculum. It gives a hidden message. So you may be speaking, we value everyone, but if you look in the books, they don't value everyone. That's hidden. Then the no curriculum is what you don't talk about, what's taboo. It just doesn't get mentioned. Like? There's a God. We're different from these bodies. There's paranormal phenomena. Did anybody in school have classes on the fact that there's paranormal phenomena that can't be explained by modern science? <laughs> Was this part of anybody's, you know, curriculum? Was mine. Yours? What? Is that in any of the textbooks? There's plenty of evidence for it. Just as strong evidence as there is for anything else. It's not mentioned. It's not talked about. Well, what happens with anything that's not talked about? Gets sidetracked. Well, it's not only that gets sidetracked, what subtle social message is being communicated about things that are never talked about? It's not important. Not only not important. Not priority. Um, doesn't exist. Doesn't exist, or it's what? Resistance. Wrong. 
It's wrong. There's something wrong about it. What kind of wrong? It's what? Socially what? Unacceptable. Socially unacceptable. It's weird. Weird. That anyone who talks about those things, there's something wrong with them socially. You follow? They even opposed to it, like, try to. Yeah. You know, if, if you come to your class in school and start talking about alien spaceships, you're really weird. <laughs> you, you push it to the fringe, and you say, these are only for people that are strange. <laughs> Rational people. And we all want to fit in. No, nobody wants to be an outcast. I mean, even outcast people have their groups of outcasts. You understand? (laughs) (laughs) The group of people who all have, you know, piercings all over their cheeks. and It's not just one person doing that. It's a group doing it together. So they have their own group that they're fitting in. So we all want to fit in. So if there's something that nobody talks about, you don't want to talk about it. You know, television shows. How many people on the television shows pray? <laughs> it depends. In the sitcoms. God channel. Oh, you have God channel. But the main sitcoms. Do people pray? Only the stock traders pray. The price go up. The stock traders pray. I mean, is, is religion or spirituality really a part of mainstream media? Take a look, which I've done at the books that are used in the schools to train children in education. Religion is gone. There's some culture. Here's an Indian family enjoying Diwali. This is what they eat. This is what they wear. Is there anything about what the meaning is or any seriousness paid to it? Very little. They'll say they believe this is when Ram came home or something. Very, very little. Like Festival of Life. Festival. They secularize it. So that Just, also means we can choose what we want to teach our children if they don't go to the regular school. Yeah. They can pick our subjects. Right. But anyway, yeah, that's why when you're growing up you never thought to ask these questions. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you ask these questions? Because we were brought up in a society where it's not discussed. At least not in the schools, not in the books they give you to read, not in the TV shows you're watching. Not in the museums, the science museums. Here is a model of what people look like 5,000 years ago. As if it's just fact. How do they know? Here's how far away the stars are. How do they know? How are you going to check it? Take your meter stick and go out and check it? How do they know? And if you, if you actually start asking the questions, how do you know? They'll say, well, we have a theory, and based on that theory, there's another theory, based on that theory, we have another theory, and therefore we decide the distances of the stars based on the spectrum of light that comes to Earth. How are you going to check it? What do you do? <laughs> you know, and, and the other things are pushed off to the side. So if you ask those questions, you're strange. Very true. Very strange. Try asking these questions, which I did. I tried asking these questions. They look at you as if like they're seeing a ghost or something like that. That's right. You're like, oh, seriously. I mean, we're, they, we're heavily socialized in modern Psychologically, so- they affect you in such a way that like, you know, you feel like, oh, if I talk this, I'm going to get, you know, unaccepted. Try talking, try talking about religion much. Oh, my gosh. You know, or spirituality, or even that we're not this body. You know, it's very hard. 
It's that starting to change. Starting, I see a shift happening. That's starting to change. Do you think so? Yes, definitely. Makes you answer to Personalism on the rise? I see more of an interest in things like harm and reincarnation, more of an interest in vegetarianism, more of an interest in ecology, um, more of an openness to ideas of spirituality and religion that involve personality. Definitely. But the other is going up too. Anyway, you know, the way I take it, I'm just speaking for myself, and, and you don't have to take it this way, I'm just talking for me. I accept that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's prediction that this movement will spread all over the world is true. Okay, I accept that. And I accept that I don't know what part I'm playing in it or what I'm going to see in this lifetime, and that I don't need to know. Yeah, I think of myself as like one of the soldiers that landed on the beaches of Normandy in D-Day. <laughs> you know, or maybe died landing on the beaches in Normandy in D-Day and never saw that the Allies won the war. You know, 70% of the Allied soldiers that landed in Normandy on D-Day died in that landing. Only 30% of them lived. You don't get told that. Hmm? What? You don't get told that every day, do you? No. <laughs> well, the soldiers, didn't get, the soldiers didn't get told. It's not that the generals could say, well, we, they knew. They knew what the odds were. And it wasn't that they could just weed out the 30% that would live. And if you go to the, the graveyards there in France, everybody's still a hero. Some of them died in the big boats. Some of them died getting from the big boats to the small boats. Some of them died in the small boats. Some of them died going from the small boats into the beach. Some of them died on the beach. And some of them made it up and knocked out the big guns and established a beachhead. And finally, they, you know. The fact is, we are living. You know, we, we can't, you know, we but did, my point is, I'm happy to have a little role in this mission, is my point. I'm not the general. I'm not one of the generals. I'm not a field commander. I'm not even a sergeant. I'm just a little private, you know? And I don't know the whole battle plans. I wouldn't be able to understand it anyway. It's not, what do they say, above my pay scale? You know, it's, it's, not, it's not where I'm functioning. I'm functioning as a, little, as, as a little helper. And my responsibility is to do my part. And I can't know how important my part is. I don't know. Nor do I know what thing I do in my life is going to be the most important to spread love of God. I don't know. Maybe something I say to somebody in this room will be the most important thing I do in my whole life. Maybe one person in this room is going to go on and become a great leader in the world because of one thing I said in one sentence. I don't know. I have no way of gauging what aspect of my life is the most meaningful in the mission. I, I just can't. I'm too small. So that's how I function. I function that I'm convinced that victory will be there because I believe the Shastras. Somebody else might not have that conviction. You know, that's. I'm not saying anybody else needs to have that conviction, but I have that conviction. I have the conviction that I'm part of it, that I'm playing a role that's important and meaningful, and I also feel that I can't necessarily understand exactly how my role is important and meaningful and where I fit into the whole picture. That someday maybe I'll understand it, someday I won't, but that doesn't even really matter. So that's enough for me. That keeps me happy and peaceful. That works for me. I'll take just your question and then I'll stop.
I just wanted to ask. I know you said just because you were so determined that you held your hand up all that time, <laughs> blood flowing out of your fingers. I, I'm quite surprised by your surprise at the fact that they don't teach religion much in schools. I'm not surprised about it. Because I'm not all surprised. The whole weirdness thing. I mean, like it's easy to say Hitler did this and that the Falcons War happened because it's. I mean, I don't want to say that oh, this isn't factual. There isn't something to you know base it on, but that's more easy for a teacher to teach. Whereas that's not why it's left out. Because that's not the reason. Interpretation. It's, it's really hard to get the correct interpretation. It's very hard to not, it's to not upset parents at the same time. Yeah, but the parents are upset because they've been indoctrinated that way. They've been indoctrinated that it's fringe. Why is it? Why is it? Do you really not know? We can just put in words. Is it because some sort of consciousness wants it? No, I don't think it's a. I, I think if it's a conspiracy, it's a very open one. Or if it's a very <laughs> hidden one. They want to exploit. They want to exploit. Oh, yeah. It's very simple. The people who are who are in charge of knowledge want to exploit knowledge. The people who are in charge of the people want to exploit the people. The people in charge of the natural resources and the wealth want to exploit wealth. The people in charge of the arts and the skills they want to exploit them. So you push this stuff to the side, because if you don't push it to the side, then it's very uncomfortable. But from where did they learn this thing? I mean, I don't think... Are you want to look at history? Bible doesn't teach this kind of, like, you know, exploitation, does it? Or is it something that just comes... Okay, well, the history the is... The, the history is that the, the class of people who are meant to protect truth became degraded. That's okay. the history. Right. If you want to find how did that happen historically. Uh, you can look at this in terms of European history just European history, which is not, that's not accurate as to why it's happened in the whole world. But if you want to just look at European history, you had the Roman Catholic Church was representing the class of people who were supposed to protect truth. They became corrupt. When they became corrupt, the government leaders who were at that time monarch, who were at that time royalty, who were supposed to protect the people under the auspices of those who were protecting truth, said, we're not going to follow these guys anymore. Well, then they were much more free to exploit the people than they had been before. And therefore, they became corrupt. Therefore, the people who were in charge of wealth, they saw these guys and they threw them out. Which is why right now, the, most of the world is being run by business and money, rather than being run by actually righteous political leaders or, or learned sages. So you can look at it just in terms of European history, going from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance and so forth. If you look at it in a broader picture and you go back thousands of years, then you start going back to the time of, of King of Emperor Pericket and how the, the guardians of the truth became corrupted. What's Emperor Pericket? Emperor Pericket uh, ruled the whole planet. He was the second to last world emperor thousands of years ago, according to the Vedas. Pericket is a grandson of Arjuna. Yes. And at that time, the protectors of truth, the Brahmanas, became corrupted. And soon after that, the, the rulers also became corrupted. So this was, that's the problem. That's the problem. So then we have a, a culture of exploitation. So one of the things we're trying to do in the Hare Krishna movement is create a class of people who are going to protect truth and preach truth. 
which will can there, thereby energize and, and activate the other members of society for their areas of protection and bring people back to a mood of service and protection and love and care in each of their areas. But is it which will then bring spirituality out from the margin to the mainstream. Isn't it like in Kali Yuga, it's by nature is such that the time, yeah, how to say it, it's just like uh, by nature it is um, tinged with hypocrisy and fault. Correct. Regardless of one's Kali Yuga is a time for really low-grade souls to take human birth. It's the opportunity for human birth for those who really hardly, barely deserve it. But everybody has got the choice. That was the main, for me, that was the main point. Everybody has the choice. But anyway, even in winter, there can be a few days of spring. It happens. It happens. So at least in this Kali Yuga, the prediction is there's going to be a, a short period of time relative to Kali Yuga, where there'll be, it'll be almost like the former ages. It'll be almost like Satyanga, almost like the springtime of the planet. Do you reckon Vedas will be properly reestablished again with Varnashram? I hope so. I don't know if I'll look to see it in this body. As I say, I'm just doing my little role. I don't know what my role is. That's the predictions. Those are the predictions. And those are not just the predictions of the Vedic scriptures. Yeah, yeah. There's, in, in many cultures of the world, there's a predictions of the golden age on earth. Prophecies. I mean, if you don't believe me, you don't believe it. And for me, it's, again, that's not what's motivating me anyway. My, my belief in that is not the main thing that's motivating me. What's motivating me is that I care about doing my little part now. Whatever it may be, whatever plan it fits into. I, I want to I do what I'm meant to do and be who I'm meant to be. And, and however, however, my, however my supreme friend and master wants to use that in his plan, then that's... That's his business. Thank you. So that's, and that's enough for me. That, that way I'm, I'm peaceful. If I, if I get too much in these other things, I, I just become disturbed. And I don't want to take birth and birth and birth again just to see whether or not those things happen. Yes? Yeah, who can you comment on? Uh, you see, Vedic teaching basically is the ultimate goal in life is moksha. Call it salvation, call it nirvana, whatever. Okay. Now, the other traditions which are now developing, for instance, Krishna consciousness, they are harping on service, yeah? Mm -hmm. Service to Krishna. Now, earlier on you were saying that Vedas are the most profound yeah. teachings. Now, they are very clearly saying that the ultimate aim of life should be moksha. Okay. So can you comment on Yes, there are different kinds of moksha. Just like if you're in prison, when you get out of prison, there's different kinds of lives you can have. So there's different levels of moksha. There's moksha merging into the Brahman, there's moksha merging into Krishna's body, there's moksha going to Vaikuntha, there's moksha going to the spiritual realm of Ayodhya, yeah. there's moksha going to Goloka and Dhamma. Yeah, Vedas are talking about moksha merging ultimately. Not only, they're talking about all different kinds, they also talk about Vaikuntha. Well, they talk about Vaikuntha, but Vaikuntha ultimately brings you down on the earth. What? Because oh. you have such a strong conditioning 
be it you're doing good deeds or bad deeds, no. ultimately you have to come to the earth. No, that's Swarga. That's Swarga. That's not Vaikuntha. That's Swarga. That's what happens if you go to Swarga. It's not what happens in Vaikuntha. Vaikuntha is part of Moksha. So can you elaborate I on that? I think it's a Loga is a Moksha. Sivaloka is a monster. Why would they you have to come back? No. It's a heavenly planet. No, no, no. Is a, uh, no, no. Vaikuntha is not a heavenly planet. Vaikuntha no. is, is above Shivaloka. Vaikuntha is? Above Shivaloka. Above Shivaloka, yeah. I think it's a Sivaloka is above Vaikuntha. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's nice about the Vedic religion is you can all go wherever you want. <laughs> So, See, this is why I'm saying, wouldn't that create a conflict in regards of, like, you know, within the same... Issue of interpretation. No, because there's, there's space for everybody. So it should be left as it is, no change. What should be left as it is? Sorry? What should be left as it is? See, the conflict. Um, as regards of the superiority in regards of, like, you know, different demigods and, you know, all this, uh, the, the, the Trimurtis... Uh, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. If you have the whole world under Vedic culture, people will be able to choose what parts of the Vedas that attract them, and they have to be able to follow that path. But for that, so we're not recommending that you merge into the Brahman or that you go to Shivaloka, but that's available. You can do that if you want to. So you're saying light and darkness will always be side by side? Well, Bra- Brahman is not darkness. Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavanati, Sajjati. Brahman is also transcendental. But Vedas have a, such a white Yes, there will always be. Yes, there will always be. But we're not going to tell people to merge into the Brahman or go to Shivaloka. We're going to say, don't do that. We don't recommend it. But if you want to do that, it's in the Vedas. There's instructions there how to do that. So if that's what you want to do, if you want to think that Shivaloka is higher than Vaikuntha, then you can go to Shivaloka. That's available. We're not saying that every that everyone only has to go to Vaikuntha or they're going to hell. It's not true. There's many, many, many different options. But we're saying we advise you to go to Krishna. We advise you to go to Vaikuntha. We advise you to have that kind of moksha. That's our advice. Prabhu. That is not moksha in the strict sense of uh, in the Vedic teaching. If you would like the other kind of moksha, you are welcome to have it. <laughs> so that's what I was questioning. That the Vedas are preaching. That the Vedas are preaching more. I don't agree with you. Not in Bhagavad Gita. I think what my friend's probably saying is the cycle of birth and death. Does that end with with going to Vaikuntha? Yes. So can you That's what Krishna says. Mahu naiti ma meti sarjana. I'm not clear about Vaikuntha. Can you elaborate well, on that? Moksha. Well, I could, except that I want to get ready to go to bed. <laughs> so my humble suggestion to you is that if you're really interested in this topic, uh, if you're interested, I would give you recommend several different shastras you can read. First of all is the Bhagavatam. Bhagavatam gives a very nice description of Vaikuntha in the third canto. Uh, there is also, of course, Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna describes his abode as above the Brahma Jyoti. Um, as far as Shivaloka, I would recommend the Brihad Bhagavatamrita, which also gives you the description of all the different levels of existence. So I would suggest that you read those and then make up your own mind what you want to do. You know, that's what Krishna says at the end of Bhagavad Gita. Now I told you all this, now decide what you want to do. 
So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.